This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to La Nina, the only podcast forecasted to make two major landfalls this year. Some people will suffer, some people might die. I'm Jim. And I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 5, entitled Chapter 31, as is the custom with House of Cards. Uh, what do you think of this episode, Aaron? I thought it was really good. It House of Cards started to kind of lose me in the uh, last episode. Yeah. Wasn't sure where we're going from the Jesus moment. Mm-hmm. Answer is pretty interesting things. We got major movement on almost all fronts. We introduced some interesting plots. Mm-hmm. Freddie, <laughs> Freddie's back, baby. Freddie's back, back with the promise of ribs to come. Yes. If they don't assign him a job where he can cook ribs, what are they doing? I'm telling you, Freddie in the White House as White House cook. Uh-huh. This is a done deal. This should just happen. It should have happened a long he time ago. He should be yeah. employee, the first employee of the United States. <laughs> he should be the one behind the desk saying, no, no, no. I want 250 and three points of ad sales. <laughs> like, he should be in Stanford's position with Frank. I want three points per rib bone, Frank. <laughs> I won't accept a penny less. Seriously. I have a certain set of skills, Frank. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot, a lot to love about this episode. Halfway through, I was a little worried that, like, Maybe we were jumping the shark a little bit with House of Cards with him trying to ram this work act through by basically presidential order here and creating states of emergency. And it got a little crazy, but at the end, they brought it around so well with Claire's involvement. There's a natural ebb and flow where Frank schemes, people counter scheme. He looks triumphant. He looks down and out. This is like a Frank and Claire triumphant episode. Frank and Claire. Frank and Claire. Frank Bolts. and Claire's monster. Sure, sure. Going into the Frankenstein well again. I am. I am sorry. I, d- I didn't even watch Frankenstein recently. Uh, so this episode is directed by James Foley, uh, who is a famous director. You might have heard about some of his things. He directed Glengarry Glenn Ross. Oh, hell yeah. His personal philosophy is always be directing, ABD. <laughs> uh, he also directed uh, The Chamber, which is a novel adaptation from the John Grisham novel of the best of the same name. Hmm. Uh, he's got a lot of television credits to his name as well. Um, this was written by Kenneth Lynn, who wrote episodes for Twin Peaks uh, and recently Hannibal and House of Cards. The last few seasons, he wrote uh, nine episodes of all House right. of Cards. So he's all it's up in, yeah. all up in, all up ons. Uh, let's talk about this in pretty much, uh, storyboard fashion or, or topic fashion. Let's start talking with the AmWorks, America Works. All right. Sounds good. We kind of get a glint. We, we start, the, the pieces start coming together. Uh, he is yep. cla- in cahoots with the mayor of DC, which was kind of mm-hmm. brilliant because it's its own independent thing and it doesn't have a governor or mm-hmm. any kind of legislative bot that he has to ram through. Yeah. It's just a dude that has to declare an emergency, and he can jump in <laughs> on it. And apparently he's all on board this plan. Mm-hmm. I'm not totally sure why, though. Does he just want more jobs for the community? And Well, like, yeah, I don't know, because my my idea of the it. mayor of D.C. is colored by Marion Barry, okay. who is the famous whore, hound, coke crack-smoking, cocaine-sniffing mayor of D.C., mm-hmm. I, that's probably an unfair characterization of the job, uh-huh. but my idea of it is kind of like a maverick. 
He's he's like Clay Davis on the wire. He mm-hmm. it's like you know someone want to give him three billion dollars. She is he supposed to say no? <laughs> you know that's what I that's sure. the feel. Yeah, no, I get you. So if motherfuckers want to hand me three billion dollars, <laughs> and I want to take the three billion dollars. That's that's what I'm getting from him. All right, uh, and like 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 he says, you know, it's like it's a scrappy bulldog that you want. It's like he's got. Yeah. He's well, got at more least when, power. At least when they're working in your favor. Like, he would say the same about Heather Dunbar if she was helping him out, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah, when it, when they're working with Frank, he likes him. Sure. Right, right, right. <laughs> but he says, like, you know, it feels good to be on the tack, and honestly, it it's a good look on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, the line, uh, my favorite line of this episode was, if they won't let me scrape the money behind the scenes, I'll rob the bank in broad goddamn daylight. <laughs> uh, really good like stuff. that. You had a point here where he's talking to Claire and he does the broad goddamn daylight where you notice the invisible doors. Yeah, the ones that blend into the wall surrounding them. And they're obviously meant to be noticed as doors because they have doorknobs, like giant honking doorknobs. Yeah, you would think that if you're going to hide the door, hide why the not, fucking door. <laughs> not have like if, if Tesla automobiles can have like a flush uh-huh. latch that only pops out when it's needed, you'd think the president of the United States can put something like that together. You would think so. Yeah. So I, I don't know what those doors are for, but they, they always like just frame it up and make it a door. Come on. I figure that they're like servant access. Okay. You know, I bet the like president the maids, has a lot of workers that like, work for him. Like that goes like directly. every amenity yes. is taken care of in the White House. Yeah, like the, those things go right down to where the scullery maids and the chefs and the the the, yeah. the, the bowels of the White House where all the stuff happens. It's basically Downton Abbey it, in America. It's, it's Downton Abbey except for you can also launch nukes. Sure, yeah, and if your you body, want to. And your, and, and your butler carries machine gun. And apparently you can declare the war to make them legal, uh, to make the launching of the nukes legal whenever you want as president. Send some some troops in where you know it'll piss somebody off. They retaliate and you declare war. So the way this plays out is the the mayor of Washington, D.C., uh, says I have I, folks don't have jobs. I got sixty thousand unemployed people right here in the nation's capital. It's a disgrace. I'm declaring a state of emergency and asking for three billion dollars. Mm-hmm. We see the Republican or the Democratic minority leader uh, on a treadmill <laughs> saying "motherfucker," yeah. and Congress is pissed. I think he's on elliptical. If he was on a treadmill, he would have fallen off. <laughs> Just face plant. We have full bipartisan support that they're committed to destroying this. <laughs> and Frank's position is kind of like, come get me. Yeah. You try to pass legislation making this run explicitly illegal, I will veto it, and then we'll let the Supreme Court decide. Yeah. And somehow Grandpa Justice is going to, uh, Jacobs is going to factor into this, right? He's got to. There's, He's got to. There's got to be some kind of grand manipulation left. Do, do you think, okay, so I was going to ask you, which way do you think that will go, in favor of Frank or against Frank? Because it could also be that, you know, he tried to pressure him out of his seat prematurely, and the guy resents that now and won't work with him. Well. Could be part of his downfall. It seems like in modern history, Supreme Court is split like four or five on any issue of note. You've always got like four conservatives, four liberals, which blows my mind when you're talking about reading law. Like, what does your personal views have in interpreting the constitutional laws? But it does. It does. And you've always got one guy who's quote unquote neutral and he caucuses liberal or conservative depending on on the issue of the day. Where the money's going. It seems (laughs) like if Jacobs is like a liberal justice, which it seems like he is – and he would be one to be opposed to this grab of power by the American president, that I wonder if Frank is going to somehow dismiss him and then use his presidential power of hand-selecting someone that he knows will back him. Mm -hmm. Now, how he gets that through the Congress, I have no idea. Like, there's a lot of moves I can see him making, but he's doing a lot of ramming through Congress. He is. I mean, he's ready to declare war to get stuff through. It's interesting commentary on the president of the United States because the unprecedented power grab that has gone on with the presidency since essentially the Civil War, but it's really ramped up since World War II. Hmm. Yeah. Is is just amazing. Like, we're, we, every president, it seems like, you know, whether you like him or not, 
uh, takes that power a little bit further, does executive orders a little bit more sweeping and broad and legislative. Mm -hmm. And then if he doesn't like a law, he can just not enforce it. It's super powerful. Yeah. He's kind of in charge of declaring war anymore Mm -hmm. nowadays, which... Yeah, man, it's uh, everyone sure. says is a problem, but anytime it happens, nobody seems to care. I think there's a lot of smart commentary on what's going on with American politics going on. Oh, in, yeah. In House of Cards. Yeah, definitely. And I'm I'm not super up on uh, the political stuff, but I enjoy watching it. Yeah. So we've got also a subplot where uh, uh, Alia or Alia, what's her name? Alia? Uh, Ayla was the former reporter. She's dismissed, which was kind of a minor crowning moment of awesome for, uh, fuck, what's his name? It's not Gavin. Seth. Seth? Yeah. And we see that that has kind of backfired because now yeah. her mentor uh, has, has her, her, her name is Kate. Um, I got it written down somewhere. I'm not really sure. Kate Silva is what you said. Kate Silva. Uh, she is coming in here and she's saying like, look, you can't dismiss two of us in a row. Yep. I am like qualified to hell and back, and I'm committed to making your life miserable. Yeah, and she does it with two front page stories uh, of information that they didn't even know was out there, let alone would want. She instantly digs into like a, like a little little thing that happens in the very beginning of the episode is a casual mention that the Department of Homeland Security has recently been vacated, uh-huh. but it hasn't been released publicly. She tears into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that guy very smartly doesn't comment publicly, but turns him over to Barney, who is the <laughs> FEMA administrator that Frank strong-armed, and yeah. used the fact that you are an honest civil servant – and you might not like what I'm doing, but if you, and uh, and this hurricane stuff might be risking people's lives, but if you leave and protest, yeah, you'll be endangering lives because someone far less experienced will jump in and take yeah. your place. And what's brilliant about that is Frank's like, I don't care. I'm willing to play ball <laughs> with people's lives, but I know you're too principled to yeah. not to, to, to get down here in the mud and wallow with me. He's going to do the same thing. The guy's going to be on his deathbed, and Frank's going to be down there. If you die, these people. <laughs> They're going to be hurt. Uh, and it'll give them one last gasp. Uh, so we've got, and this is also very topical. You know, we're in the middle of a La Nina uh, cycle, and they're predicting two major hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Although, I got to say, I, I feel like that Frank is right. He can take this $3 billion and spend oh, yeah. it in this one location as a test bed for his plan. And if there is a hurricane... There's no way Congress denies him funds just to be petty. No, you're absolutely right. The thing I think he's concerned about is the delay in time responding to the hurricane Ah, caused by needing to ask for money instead of having the money ready to go. I guess that's true. And they do make that point. So yeah, that's probably Frank just where doesn't care. At. Yeah, no, Frank's like fuck it. Yeah, I'll endanger some people's lives. We're gonna get Katrina 2.0 here. I've killed people. I have directly killed people. What do I care if more people's lives are in danger? Uh, so that's the main plot of Amworks, but I thought the selling of the Amworks was another good thing to talk about as it's kind of his own unit. And we we get the mm-hmm. fact that Frank, you know, he's a video gamer. We've seen him play Call of Duty before. Yep. He's moved on to casual games. Monument Valley, yeah, one that I've definitely heard of. Oh, was it Monument Valley? I thought it was um, Princesses. What was it? Secret <laughs> Princess? Silent Princesses. No, that's that's what you play as. That's the character you play as. Oh. He's he's playing a game where he's a silent princess. And it's called Monument Valley. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I've never heard of this game. Okay. It looked kind of like Captain Toad's Adventure from like one of those puzzle, three-dimensional puzzle games. Yep. Yep. Um, I love the description that the writer, that Mickey Doyle gives of it in his review. Was Like uh, M.C. Escher-esque. Like the, yeah, the yeah, likes yeah. of only which M.C. Escher could have even dreamed. Right. Or some shit. <laughs> so, so speaking of him, uh, Mickey Doyle, played by Paul... Sparks. He's one of our, I wouldn't say favorite characters, but a guy you love to hate on Boardwalk Empire. Oh, yeah. He's the guy that goes, uh, <laughs> he is playing the role of author Thomas Yates, who's recently mm-hmm. wrote a presumably bestseller called Gal- God's Cauldron. Yeah. And another episode, another book called Scorpio. And apparently he also used to write for video games, or he is writing reviews of video games, <laughs> highfalutin video yeah, game as, reviews. As a bestselling author, do you go to write video game Is he doing that for reviews? Kotaku? Is he doing that think, for, yeah. uh, like, uh, Polygon? Somewhere smaller, like is PlayStation this, Magazine or is something. Is this like when Hunter Thompson started writing for ESPN's Page 2 mm-hmm. uh, com when he was kind of in the twilight of his career? He's slumming, yeah. essentially. I think so. Uh, he's got an idea of how to sell this, and he 
brings him into his office and he pitches it as like, I want you to do as good a job selling Amworks as you did selling the video game. He's like, yeah, I wasn't trying to sell the video game. I was talking about my experience. And he's like, there you go. I want you to tell my story. Uh, it just so happens he brings him in on the day that they set up the tent right outside in the National Mall. Just so happens? Or do you think he planned that? Oh, no. He planned it. Okay. Uh, on the fourth, on, I believe on 4th of July weekend. Yeah, it is. And it's right there in the National Mall, and you can see just people lined up to sign up for the job initiative. Frank's got fireworks and stuff going. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think with this this Thomas Yates, he's basically ass, offering him an all access pass to tell whatever story he wants. With Frank thinking it's going to be a good one, mm-hmm. it reminded me a lot of Bobby Knight giving a reporter access to write what eventually became known as uh, the book Season on the Brink. Okay. And he was fine with it. And then he read the book and he was furious. I mean, it, <laughs> by all accounts, is a very accurate tale of what Bobby Knight is like, uh-huh. coaching a former coach of IU basketball, uh, Indiana University Hoosiers, during, I think, it's the 84 kind of semi-disaster season. Or maybe it's 85, the year after they won the national title. Uh, but the thing is, is, Bob Knight is kind of a dick and kind of an asshole and telling a truthful uh, a, 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 st- a version of that story involves outing the fact that you're kind of a megalomaniacal asshole. Yep. I think this is where this story is headed. It has to be, right? Where where else does it go that it is interesting? Well, when Frank, he says, uh, you know, journalists can't resist telling a story and politicians can't resist making promises they can't keep. <laughs> this is basically setting up massive conflict. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how he's... It's transparent. It's a little too transparent. I don't know how he stops Yates from telling a very unflattering story because Frank is a dick and an asshole. You're right. You're right. And I, a megalomaniacal I, And I person. think if, if this Yates guy understands Frank in any r- relevant way, he's going to know that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think Frank can fool him. How about this? How about during the course of investigating him for this book, he uncovers the Rachel stuff? Good. Is that interesting? If he documents his rise to power... Like, yeah, Frank like these dots in, aren't connecting. What's going on here, Frank? Frank is inviting him to look at all the skeletons in his closet. So all the ones that he wants to show him, but I think he's going to find more. He, yeah, is he going to interview his personal bodyguard, Meacham? <laughs> the Threecham's got to be in that book, three, right? Yeah. If it's not in there, it's a huge oversight. Speaking of amenities of the White House, if you're what <laughs> chief bodyguard, you got hot and cold running pussy and penis uh-huh. at, on tap. Just whenever you, I mean, there's there's some stuff there, right? Sure. Uh, I loved at the end of the episode in the dark, everyone watching fireworks, like, you know, yes. standing in line for this kind of entitlement handout, whatever is patriotic. Mm-hmm. And Frank is over the loudspeaker giving a speech, and it's very like 1984, V for Vendetta, Half Life 2, Half Life 2, like uh, any big brother government thing. Dystopian, yeah. That was intentional, right? It's got to be. It's got to be. The blatant propaganda with... I mean, the only thing that could have made it better is that there was giant posters of Frank's face. Yes. Or or Mm. a view screen. Or him, yeah, him on a TV. Yeah. An extreme close-up. Sure. I No, I I really like that imagery. Um, I I don't know where you're going from here, but I kind of want to talk about... Freddy. Okay. All right. That's a perfect place to go. Because he's in line. Sure. And he is Freddy. He's still <laughs> he's in line and he's Freddy. All right, the <laughs> two rough, things that right. we need to know about him That's at this right. moment. Uh, so, if you don't remember, he had a deal to make a, a national chain of Freddy's restaurants, uh-huh. and he was going to cash out. And he had a son who had a little bit of criminal background, and Freddy himself had some criminal background. This son, uh, in the kind of like intense scrutiny that Frank had brought on their relationship because he used them to cater several things. And, you know, we know how involved they were with each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, Frank had to distance himself from him at the same time. This intense media scrutiny caused his son to brandish a weapon at a reporter, Uh which triggered the uh, morality clause of his restaurant deal. He had to Mm -hmm. sell his original restaurant to bail the son out of jail and then he lost the contract because of the ethics clause. God damn it. Now, a lot of people, when I was reading the wiki to kind of refresh my memory, number one, 
watch that because the Wikipedias are all updated with new information, and I came perilously close to reading a spoiler. So did I. Like paragraph I can't do that one, anymore. Paragraph one is safe. Paragraph two, oh shit. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> spoilers. It, and there's not like marked for season three. It's just nope. like, here's what ha- – and I'm like, oh, God, you got to be careful. Uh, but the Wikipedia's consensus was that they had a falling out. I I remember on the podcast, and my personal recollection is not that Freddie was angry with Frank. It's more like, I know you got to do what you got to do, and I ain't going to accept huh. handouts. Like, Frank wanted to help him, and yeah. he didn't want that help. And yeah, him, you're right about that. Him sure. saying, uh, you're nothing more than a good customer, I thought was his kind of manly way of telling Frank, I'm... I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to give them anything to use. I don't think that they ended on... I mean, they're not ended on friendly terms, but they didn't end as like some kind of bitter enemies either. I don't feel like they ended as bitter enemies. I felt like there was some hurt and anger in that statement from Freddie that, you know, you've always just been a customer or whatever. That's... That, to me, felt like him saying, you've offended me, you've hurt me, you know... Just letting him know. Not saying he's going to necessarily hold that against him forever, hmm. but definitely like a little bit of betrayal in his voice there, hmm. or his words. Where do you think it's going to go now? Because I have I no have, idea. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I don't know what where that gets us with Freddy. I feel like that was just a teaser. Like, hey, Freddy, remember It's going to be like Morgan. We're going to go see yes. him again until the season finale, and coming soon on season four of... Uh-huh. Uh, okay. So what is anything else you want to talk about, Freddie, or should we move no. on to the Jordan Valley? Yeah, that's what I want to talk this about. This is the other fork mm-hmm. uh, of the dilemma that Frank has got. We're starting to understand what this is about. This is about a uh, the literal Jordan Valley, which is uh, the mm-hmm. episode helpfully tells us is a piece of real estate 10 miles wide by 40 long, which is hotly contested in the... Uh, uh, it, it's it's a linchpin to making peace between Israel and Palestine. The plan calls for U.S. peacekeepers to deploy to the area, uh, which will allow Israel to withdraw strategically while the United States keeps the peace. Palestine move in. As, as essentially, this is going to be somehow some some path to statehood. Mm-hmm. And with the with, with the U.S. there assuring that the Palestinians are not going to use that land to stage attacks on Israel, that's mm-hmm. what I'm gathering is what this is all about. Uh, what I thought was cool is this is essentially like Dan Carlin worldview 101. It is, and yeah. and there was this brilliant scene where they had um, uh, a a foreign policy advisor briefing um, what's her name Heather. Dunbar. Dunbar yeah. on, like, why this is the real politic of this. And he yeah. sca- scanned the map just a few miles away and said, this is what this is all about. This is – people don't realize this, but this is right on the border of Russia. Yep. And just like we wouldn't be huge fans of them deploying Russian troops to Panama mm-hmm. or any place in the whole f- f- Western Hemisphere. Sure. Uh, Russians are not big fans of us deploying several thousand troops within marching distance of Russia. Yep. Uh and I like the fact that they are actually showing why, you know, a lot of, I think in the United States, a lot of Americans get the, you know, like Putin's evil, Putin's crazy, and he may very, mm-hmm. very well be. But opposing U.S. expansion in the Middle East and Eastern Europe is not insane from a Russian, <laughs> hey, hey, this is our sphere of influence. Sure, yeah. And if they did it to us, we, would, we wouldn't allow it. I mean, no, fuck. No, certainly not. Watch the movie 13 Days to find out what happens. Yep. <laughs> Well, when when you all put this... missiles near America. Right, which was, that was the thing. Like, we we put missiles in Turkey, uh-huh. which made Russia put missiles in Cuba, and we're like, oh, what the fuck? Yeah. So it's like, that's happening again. It re- yeah, it really is. And, uh, I mean, if you want to hear... real life. Uh, uh, yeah, in real life and the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's very much mirroring what's going on right now yeah. with politics with Russia. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that was great to see as well. I think a little more context on the broader world scale is good for everybody. Yep. Myself included. Indeed. Uh, And also another stuff is like Dan Carlin 101 is when the uh, Claire was trying to strong arm the Russian (laughs) – because the Russians are now – you know they've kidnapped the gay rights activist. Yep. They're threatening to arm Iran. And she's like, if you do that, we'll put economic sanctions. And he's like, that might work with China. 
But we only get like five our five percent of our exports uh, depend on the United States and and Europe needs us for our natural gas. So we fuck you and your economic sanctions. Yeah. You can't make them stick. We're holding the cards. Which is all true. Yeah. <laughs> and Claire's like, oh huh. Um But then I guess her plan is to go ahead and put troops in there regardless, because that's what Frank can do. So yeah, the the Israel this this Israel and Palestine are pulling out because Israel's afraid that they were just going to pay lip service to this and then not actually do it. Yeah, and that's Which, a big problem for her because she's trying to block the Russian veto in the right. UN of, of these troops going in. So her idea was to go to Francis and say, can you give me an executive order that guarantees that you will give X amount of troops to any UN resolution passed? Uh-huh. Which is something that he said, well, you know what? That's going to piss off Congress, but they're already pissed off. So, <laughs> which I kind of like, like there's a peak amount of outrage and vitriol that people can pump out to you every day and people absorb. Mm-hmm. So when you're at like, you know, 10% approval rating and Congress hates you, uh-huh. why not keep trying to make swings at the baseball? You know, that's the thing. So I try to hit a home run. I was thinking during this, man, I don't know if he has the public opinion available to him to do this. Uh, but ultimately, it doesn't matter if he's not being nominated for election for re-election next time, right? Right. So he's either going to make this all work out, his public opinion is going to turn around, and he's, his plan to force these guys into nominating him yes. or running against them anyway, as perhaps another party or something, is going to work. It's yet another... And if, and if this plan doesn't work and public opinion tanks, it doesn't matter because he was never going to get elected anyway. Exactly. This is... Once or it's, twice an episode, or once or twice a season, Frank Underwood puts all of his chips <laughs> into the table. You're right, and almost he's the only one willing to do all that. Yeah, and you know he's betting that he has the best hand of cards out of all the people with the tes- testicular or ovarian fortitude mm-hmm. that can put their chips in the pile with him. Yeah, and so far he's always been right. So far, now if this is potentially the last season, I don't know. Uh, we might see him fail spectacularly. Uh, that's what, the thing that's really making it interesting for me this year is I don't know if this has another year. I, I don't know if he's going to survive this season even. Yeah, like other seasons, we've always thought that he was going to win somehow. Yeah. And it's still been fun to watch him. But this season, I'm always waiting for the worm to turn. Yeah. And it's added a little bit of spice to the watch. Definitely. Uh, one of the pleasures is the Russian ambassador who's been... I mean, the Russian president was super insulting to Claire. Mm-hmm. He's been... I thought he was fairly respectful in previous episodes, um, but she's been kind of strong-arming him. So he took this opportunity of like, we ain't afraid of your, uh, you know, warmongering. We're not afraid of your economic sanctions. Fuck off to add a little bit of, you're no more qualified to be an ambassador to you in than I am the first lady. And also, nice dress, by the way. Such a dick Oof, move. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what? She paid him back when she with met a him, shit meeting. When she met him in the John, or in this yep. case, the Jane, and <laughs> he starts it off with like, applying makeup and like, "Oh, do I look pretty?" Oh yeah, no, I love it. Can I? Can it's I? Great. Get, it's nice to have a man's opinion. Then she goes to take an audible piss. Uh huh. Open door, like <laughs> straight up, President Johnson. Mm-hmm. She she President Johnsoned him. Oh yeah. Like if he had taken a deuce, it would have been the only thing. She had taken a deuce, it'd been the only thing yeah. stronger. No, it's fantastic. Uh, once uh, she goes, look like I got Israel back on board, um, and you're going to your president's going to invite us to Russia to meet face to face and work all this stuff out. And oh, we're going to need that gay rights activist back. And by the way, hand me your hand me the towel, bitch. Yeah. Uh, which she did. <laughs> and they rolled over, man. They yeah. rolled over immediately. And they mentioned at the end of the episode that Frank, they're look, they're, they're, I guess they're meeting in Russia, which I have a couple questions on. And also they are going to release Michael Corrigan during their visit, which mm-hmm. will be a major coup if it works out that way. However, can you see... What do you think is going to happen? Wow. Yeah, Petrov is kind of an asshole, isn't he? Uh, it may not go as smoothly as they want it to. How about that? I could see an inverse. <laughs> That's a non-specific prediction. Where Frank goes with Claire and is super insulting. Uh-huh. And, you know, but one of those things where it's like could could be construed as just cultural differences. And then ultimately the Russian has some way to fuck him over with the press conference version. It's, it's basically the inverse of what happened last time. Could be. He gives him yeah. a shitty surfboard. 
uh, he hits on his, you know. So that'll kind of tie the score, and then we'll see yeah. one final round. Yeah. I don't know breaker. what Frank does. What's the equivalent of kissing his wife slash putting a cigar out on his parking or on, on his uh, garage exit? Uh, is he going to si- fuck his he, mistress? He's going to sing Corby Nikki or whatever it is <laughs> uh, with all the wrong lyrics. He's going to play Tetris during the during the dinner with the yeah, sound crank, crank the max. I, I don't know because it doesn't feel like this guy has anything that like he's got to challenge his authority is what he has to do I feel in like front of people. He kisses the president full on the mouth. <laughs> I sure yeah no I I feel like he fucks I feel like he fucks a revenge fucks his uh, mistress but who it's a mistress it's not like it's his wife oh it's still that that. Uh, p- fake Putin would take that as an insult. You think so? All right. Because it's, uh, you know, I think he would see that as like a property rights issue. I mean, I know that's offensive, oh, Jesus, but yeah. I think it's it's meant to be seen hmm. as broadly offensive. Okay. Could could be. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't either, but I'm, I kind of expect in an Alice in Wonderland through the Looking Glass version of the last meeting, yeah. which seems terrifically entertaining. Sure. I've got a question for you. Uh-huh. Why Why do you think it is that Claire sleeps in that other bedroom? That was my next bullet point. Okay. I don't know, because this was a throwback. Them sharing a cigarette in the Oval Office was a throwback to their, you know, their brownstone window smokes. Window yeah. smokes. Mm-hmm. And he talked about the fact that, you know, she says, uh, I've never explained why I stayed in a different bed. And he's like, well, you said it's because it was cold. And he goes, well, it's not why I've stayed there. But then she never explains it. I feel like it might be a subconscious thing for her, trying to separate herself a little bit from this first lady persona that she has. I mean, I, granted, it's not just a persona. It is, she's a first lady. But, like, she's, when she went into the UN, she, it kind of felt to me like she didn't want people to think of her as a first lady. Just kind of judge her on her own merits as a UN ambassador. Okay. Um, but she mentioned it wasn't because I don't love you or I've stopped yeah, loving you. I think it was subconscious. Like, she didn't even realize necessarily why she was doing it. Huh. There's got to be something more, though. And the fact that they left it open and he wasn't really interested in probing further has got to be... Hmm. I don't know. Maybe she maybe she fucks Petrov. <laughs> when? I mean, in Russia. Sneaking out. When she's... in Russia. Oh, oh, she hasn't yet. No. But she will. No. Hmm. I suppose that could happen. I don't know. They I don't know why. They, they just have to do it right. He insulted her so much. I can't see her yeah. doing that. Like even to get, because I don't think she's particularly angry at Frank either. He's no, done everything like sometimes against his better judgment that he, she's wanted him to do. So that would feel more like a petty betrayal for no good reason. I, but I can't figure out. I can't figure out what they're trying to say this. Also, we've never seen them actually have sex yeah. until this season. Mm-hmm. But this is the season that they're spinning apart in the bed time and uh, spending time apart in a bedroom. Yeah. And this is the season where neither one of them has like something on the side other than the three chum, which maybe they're partaking of, maybe they're not. Uh huh. There's something about that. Like the let they're, they're more physically intimate and more faithful to each other, but it somehow screwed up their dynamic. <laughs> There's something there, but I don't know yeah. what it is. This love stuff is getting in the way of our business. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. No, I can totally see that. Yeah. There's something else there. Uh, next topic, and pretty much the only topic we got left to talk about, Doug. Oh, yeah, Doug Stamper. What is going on with Doug? I feel like at this point the show has done enough to convince me and Heather Dunbar that Doug is on her side. I think when he trotted out that info about Claire's abortion, that was a true determining factor for me into his How does he... Motives. So, so okay, I'm going to read something from Double uh, uh, A Ron T here. Uh, he sent a feedback. Goes, uh, he wants us to consider about what's going on with Doug. He goes, first, you got the straightforward scenario where Doug is fed up with Frank and honestly trying to work against him. Mm-hmm. While this is possible, I think we know there is more at play. <laughs> Second scenario, off camera, Frank and Doug plan this out, and he's working as a spy against Dunbar. The scenario is possible, but well, uh, as well, but I do not personally think this is what's going on. Third scenario is uh, my, his prediction. I think Doug is doing this to prove to Frank that he is back and is capable. Then, depending on what Frank does, Doug will either stick with Dunbar and use Rachel against Frank, or he okay. will backstab Dunbar and kill Rachel. It's a good plan. I like it. So, uh, to me, it's hard to walk back the abortion diary. 
Like that is, is out yeah. and it's in your his you know Frank's biggest enemy so far is hands. Yeah. How does Doug work that to Frank's favor? Now, that's a fair question. I'm I'm wondering if Doug knows enough about this woman to have 100% faith that she will never release that information because of all the reasons she gives right after he presents it to her. You know, uh, as as a woman, I would never do this to another woman. But on you the other hand, she also offered him formally a job. Like, to me, he's kind of exposing her for the same type of person that Frank is. Like, hmm. she says all this stuff, but when the push comes to shove, she's going to reach for the nuclear option. Uh, and maybe he will have gotten rid of it, burnt it by then. I don't know. I don't know how this is. I, I There is something more here. I agree with double A on T. I just mm-hmm. don't know enough to read the tea leaves as yet. Yeah. The presidential race is heating up because Dunbar's really hitting the press. She's appearing with the uh, gay rights activist husband and demanding that Frank do more, which is, you know, it's all. I always think it's interesting when an incumbent runs against a newbie that the newbie can just savage the president on policy that the newbie has the new contender, the, the, the presidential hopeful. Yeah. There's like, you don't know what you can and can't do in the white house. So it's very easy to criticize a president for what he is or is not doing. Sure. Like it's, it's extremely hard to, to, I mean, it's very easy to run against their record because you have none. That's true. But at the same time, like as a, as an outsider looking in on that, I also see that the president has a lot clearer idea of what he's talking about because he necessarily does. He's sure. the one making these policies with people. He's the one, uh, he's the one who's in it day to day. Sure. So he's necessarily going to have more information and a better grasp on it. And I give him points for that. So I feel like in some ways in my head, at least it balances out. How do you feel? Because we had, I think, what's, I forget her name, Meredith from The View was interviewing these. And we've seen Chris Matthews. We've seen Stephen Colbert. We've seen Wolf Blitzer on House of Cards. What's your opinion of real journalists taking part in fake journalism? I don't really mind it. I think it lends a certain air of credibility to the show more than anything. Yes. But what does it do to the credibility of the journalist? Because here's my perspective. As a person who watches a lot of wonky news shows like Mm -hmm. Hardball, like... You know, I this watch. I watch a lot of politics. I every time this comes up, they always like play the clip of them, and it's kind of like, you know, the way we when we meet a celebrity, when mm-hmm. we've gotten the privilege of meeting a few of them, and it's kind of like this, ooh, and you show off pictures, and it's like you're bragging, but it's also kind of like weird that you're bragging that you met this fa- famous person, mm-hmm. and it kind of makes us look small time. <laughs> uh, I there's something unseemly about these people like look at this weird crazy show that we are lending our legitimacy to for no journalistic integrity it's, it feels like a weird way of them selling out to me and I don't like it I don't like it yeah I don't feel that I don't, I don't you don't watch these shows though you don't really right that's true yeah that's true I don't know it bothers me but like when uh, I see I don't know, because, I mean, I've seen, obviously, like, John Oliver and stuff, and I've seen John Stewart and stuff. That and doesn't Stephen bother Colbert. me nearly as much, because they're fake journalists. That paradoxically no, I mean, are doing... Colbert is, yeah. So is Stewart. But these guys are not fake journalists. He's not... Yeah, Stewart would be the first to tell you that he's not a real journalist. He's there no, to entertain he, people. That's his mission statement. So, Frank outlines the bait and switch with Jackie, and I... So Jackie's going to run as a presidential hopeful and then to to destroy Dunbar, presumably, and then to ultimately uh, take one for the team and then become Frank's vice president. Okay, f- so fine. We finally get all that out. Do you think that her and Remy are actually on that playbook? Because they seem like they're up to something. They do. I mean, we know that Jackie was the one who went to ALA with information about Frank. So, But that could all be part of the scheme. It could be. I don't know where it fits in yet. Frank seemed awful angry about the pit bull being replaced by the dragon for that to be. But then maybe again, see, it's like, how deep does this go? Is this a backdoor thing to get Doug back in because it's exposing Seth as a. But how do you guarantee Ayla's reaction? 
How do you guarantee that she goes so over the top that you can justify pulling her credentials? I don't know from like is from it, what you've. I mean, you 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 judge uh, future per- performance based on or future predictions based on past performance, right? Okay, sure. So she has been a firebrand pain in his side, and he's just going to give her enough rope to hang herself mm-hmm. and disgrace Seth. That lets Doug back. I don't like. I said I know how much of this is architected and how much of this is just organically happening, but it makes me wonder. But if he gets rid of Seth, Doug isn't Seth. Doug is Doug is Remy. True. Doug so is not Seth. Does Remy go? Does Remy take? press secretary position uh mm. yeah I, I don't know he might be able to do it i guess i don't know why he wouldn't that would be the old team getting back together again yes because <laughs> i guess the start of the series uh, remy, the the series, remy, remy is was a, that position he was the press secretary or the chief assistant i thought he was with the oil companies at the he was beginning. but i'm saying that like frank talked about how he chose the money over power Oh, okay. So right, before right, right. the series even, and started, presumably yeah. Doug was with. So that's just kind of like his, you know, his old war horses were Doug, Remy, yeah. and you know, whoever, whatever his secretary. Which we haven't seen her. Uh, no, we haven't. Remember Not for a while? Did uh-huh. she stick with the? Yeah, I can't remember where we left her in the last season. I don't know. She put up Rachel in season one, and I kind of lost track of her. Yeah, me too. Anyway. Uh, all this is to say, I don't get what's going on with her and Remy because they're talking about her marrying this doctor and her adopting his two kids that I guess love her and she loves the doctor, but she's also got the serious torch that she's holding for Remy. Remy seems to be holding the torch for her, which does not jive with my memory of their relationship last year. Yeah, me either. It seemed like, Hey, you're a sexy person who's a politics to a, who's a power broker. And so am I. So let's, uh-huh. let's, let's fuck. Yeah. That's what it seemed like to me. Um, it it doesn't seem to me that Jackie is as much worried about this as Remy is. I don't Jack, know, man. Jackie almost it felt to me like he was she was telling him off a little bit. Sure, like, but in previous check episodes, check out this big fucking ring. Get out of my face. In with previous your... episodes, it seemed like she was gagging for him, and now it seems like she has turned the tables on him and yeah. made him jealous. But to what end? I don't understand. I don't know. I don't know where the show is going with that. Now I could see them. So, like, this doctor seems like, first of all, they seem like they have a good sex life. They seem like their home life is good. Mm-hmm. And they seem like they genuinely like slash love each other. And he's on board with being the politicians. Like, they've talked about the expectations of being the mate of a politician. Sure. But Remy and Jackie seem more like Frank and Claire. Yes. Both good and bad. Sure. I buy that. So do you think that's what they're setting up? <laughs> like the next generation of... Yeah. Scheming asshole. Yeah. With a different male female dynamic and all that. Yeah. yeah. It could be. Why huh. not? I'm sure somebody has to su- succeed Frank if he moves out of the picture. Right. Uh, and we also, in this race, in, we talked about the foreign policy expert who laid out the con side of Frank's long plan with this Jordan Valley, that if this... If this blows up in his face, then you can say that, you know, he's made this disaster in foreign policy decision that's made the world a more dangerous place and also put his inexperienced wife in charge to have this perfect storm that you can then take advantage of. Yeah, no, it's bad news all around if this doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we'll see what's going on with like, that. I really I, don't. I feel like Frank has set him up himself up in a position where all of these things have to work. And if they don't work, his his entire career is over. Yeah, it's not just any one of them comes through. It's like they all have to. Yeah, every single thing has to work as planned. And no one that he's counting on supporting him can betray him. When yep. I see the seeds of betrayal in Doug and Jackie, mm-hmm. and honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if Claire backs, although he's been solid for her and she's been solid for him. Yeah. But she's she would backstab him if she thought that he was disloyal to her in some way. Probably. Anyway. Uh, that's all we got. We got a ton of feedback. That's the way these podcasts are going. We kind of do sprint and drifts where uh, we record a couple episodes and we get a whole bunch of backlog of email. And then some, you know, when we record things back to back, we have a feedback deficit. But we got plenty this week. And I'm going to start from the top. Some of these are for 301, 302, and others. And then we got a few for this particular episode. Uh, Tiffany C. brings up something from the first episode that I wanted to talk about and I've forgotten to. I'm surprised about the very odd relationship between Doug Stamper and his brother. 
If I'm right, his brother flew in to take care of a sibling that he had not seen in a decade, and Stamper was not very gracious or appreciative. Mm-hmm. I think Stamper's obsession with Underwoods and his inflated sense of purpose in their lives will turn out to be his final undoing. They would have been fine with his death had he not left Rachel as a loose end, seeing as he knows so much about the wrongdoings that Frank has committed. Some may have found it a bore, but I find Stamper's obsession with the Underwoods very interesting. Do you think that Frank will get Doug drunk and carbon monoxide up in the garage before the end of the season? There's a lot of parallels there between Pete, recovering alcoholic. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I could totally see that happening. Yeah. Especially if he tries to expose the Rachel stuff mm-hmm. for the benefit of of uh, Dunbar, is that too on the nose, Pete, for you, or is that acceptable? Because that's uh, that's if, if it goes down that way, that's essentially Pete would be the original Death Star, and Doug would be the Death Star too. You got the trench run, you blow it up, you party with Ewoks, and you're done. What if Doug does something like that to Frank? Ooh. <laughs> Turn it around. But Frank doesn't have that kind of vice. Like, Frank's downfall sure. will be inter- external, not internal, I don't think. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, he he seems to have a fairly good command of himself as a person. Like, Pete's self-destructed. That's what allowed him to, Frank, to murder him, essentially. Yeah. Uh, of course, Frank helped a lot. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Oscar A said, I wanted to ask if you think there's anyone politically motivated in the show that is a clear-cut for or against the Underwoods at this point. It seems to me everyone is so gray or vindictive enough to switch sides, and Jackie's played made me think uh, that I'm on to something. I have no idea if she knows how to back the right side or not. Are you, t- are you talking major, like, players in the plot, or are you talking, like, because the Democratic and the Republic Party both hate him in the, the House. Yeah, name one person he can solidly count on. Claire? Claire. That's it. Uh, I feel like maybe Seth is in that camp as well. I don't know. Seth stepped in it with the dragon business. He did. And he's a he's more of a mercenary anyway. Is he? Like he was never... Doug, Doug is just loyal. He yeah. is a soldier. But now he's apparently flip-flopped. But that's after a long time of either Frank deliberately <laughs> trying to alienate him uh-huh. and or long conning a way to get... I mean, like I said, I don't... Sure. That's still yet to come. Yeah. Remy is a little mixed up here with the Jackie thing. I don't ever buy Seth as entirely loyal. Um, There's nobody he's got, really. (laughs) This show's got you paranoid. Donald Bly certainly isn't. You know, his vice president hates him and is being schemed actively against. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court's pissed off at him. He's got nothing. Yeah, so many people are actively angry at this guy at this point. The mayor of D.C. seems to love Frank Underwood. You're right. That's it. Yep. Mayor of D.C. for president. Uh, Les S. had some thoughts on the eggs. He said... uh, uh, the number one, the Frank egg was the black one with both the presidential and first pre- lady seals. There was a definite effort to identify this egg as black, which must be significant. Does black mean death? At the end, Claire mm. puts two eggs in a frying pan, possibly representing the two of them. Does this represent both Claire and Frank uh, being cooked, uh, mm. meaning they end up either actually dead or two having their careers destroyed? Yeah, totally good. I like that. Uh, on Frank not seeking nomination, Frank said he did not seek the Democratic nomination in 2016. With all he is doing to seemingly undermine the Democratic Party, the drone strike issue, etc., could he absolutely actually flip the script and run as a Republican? He didn't say he wasn't running at all. It's not like he's above this level of betrayal. Which... Because those are our only two options. Look, people, he can run if he wants to run if he has the money, right? But do you think he could he could somehow get on Mendoza's side and offer him the VP spot and switch. That's like, there's no way. I think these guys are just so pissed at him for being a manipulative asshole in the first place. They would recognize it, A, and B, even if they didn't, they would never go along with him on anything. Yeah, but these are guys saying, you guys strong-armed me this one time and you're not going to do it again. Like, okay, that's a challenge. I don't... (laughs) Steve from Florida also co-signed this guy. He came up with it independently, but... uh, um, uh, Les got it in first. Said so, so the same thing about running as Republican. That almost never happens. Like sometimes you'll have an independent who is, you know, either a liberal or conservative, an independent a sheep declare one way or another, or you'll have a Democrat like uh, uh, Lieberman declared as an independent, kind of as a, as a fuck you to his own party. Mm-hmm. But a president switching a sitting president, I don't even know if that's const. I don't even know that that's constitutional. 
with the fact that the president is still the one position that's still not a democracy. It's representative, representative, mm-hmm. it's electoral. Mm-hmm. So you're not really voting for a man. You're voting for the party's nomination. I don't know what yeah. the hell that would happen if a sitting president huh. said. Now, if he if he's he could run as something else. If he says I'm time, not right? seeking re-election, I'm running as a Democrat. Yeah, yeah, I guess he could do that. Man, that would be Gonzo crazy. <laughs> it would be. Sh- that's too far. Well, I'm just saying that like. The Democrats aren't going to – I mean, just on principle, Democrats out there are going to vote for you. Yeah. And Republicans would be deeply skeptical of you switching sides. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway. Um, and not to mention the public. I mean, how are you going to give votes to the public? That's what I'm talking who, about. I'm talking oh, about okay. the people. I thought, I thought you meant within the the Congress and the Senate. Yeah. Uh, Curry McKay said, uh, I did want to speculate on the Claire Cracked Eggs theory. Okay. Uh, it's probably a callback to her inclinations toward motherhood in earlier seasons, or could it be? Hmm. Like in the wake of her being voted down, she's realizing that her first ladyship doesn't afford her the power she thought she might have, and that she's just given up the possibility of having children for a position that isn't garnering her the opportunities she thought it might. Additionally, I think that if they wanted it purely as an omelet metaphor, she would have made an actual omelet. The fried egg thing seemed to impl- uh, evoke an egg emphasis on egg wordplay. I don't know because Claire seems like she is not interested in being a mother just on her own own steam. And that was the mistake the photographer like made. Like he underestimated her as a person and thought that a lot of the stuff was Frank's desires and not her own. Yeah, I think so, you're right. But I did a lot of the thoughts I thought they were interesting. Moving on to Glenn B. said this is an interest. This is a question from the very end of the episode for Chapter Twenty Eight about the lawsuit by the man whose family was killed in a drone strike. Here's how I understand it, and even with a degree in political science and a solid decade of being a legal nerd since, I'm only like eighty percent sure it's correct. So take this with a huge grain of salt. The man whose name escapes me is suing the government civilly uh, for monetary damages, presumably for wrongful death, pain and suffering, and medical expenses to make for his own injuries, rather. The Solicitor General is defending the U.S. government in this case, which has arisen presumably through a series of appeals to the Supreme Court, which is, of course, her job. Her recommended legal strategy has been to evoke executive privilege. That is to say that the executive branch doesn't need to answer any questions about the drone strike, which deprives the plaintiff of any evidence that the U.S. government was responsible. This is a rip-from-the-headlines sort of gambit, as this was a drone strike lawsuit against the U.S. government dismissed in real life on this exact same basis. Um, and he linked me an article uh, on Yahoo News about this lawsuit being dismissed about the drone strikes. He says, Frank decided instead to declassify the intelligence and operation. This is legal and a prerogative as a chief executive. What the G- Solicitor General meant by saying it wasn't the most sound legal strategy is kind of like a lawyer advising a criminal defendant that confessing to the crime is unsound legal strategy. <laughs> the president can do what he does, but it might increase the likelihood of the court ruling against them in this case depending on what they think of the executive branch's rationale for the strike. So he's he's putting everything on the table, right? Like literally all of his chips are in. His freedom at the end of this might be in uh, on the table. I don't table. know about that. Like I I mean if if he's breaking laws, I but he's not. Well, that's to be argued, isn't it? Like that's what they're going to decide whether or well, not what like he did. It seems like the case is whether the government owes this man a settlement. Oh, really? Okay. For a response, not like it's a cr- war crime or something like that. It hasn't risen to that. But okay. your point is well right. taken. He, he's not just pushing all his chips. He's playing five hands of poker simultaneously and pushing all his chips in on all five games. Sure, sure. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's wild. I like it. <laughs> uh, Kelly S. has an interesting point on the Doug syringe issue. Um, said one reason Doug may be using a syringe is to avoid the physical sensation, the experience of alcohol moving over his lips. Based on the scenes with his obsession with Rachel Sheets in season two, I'd say that sensory experiences are very important to him. Also, the sensation of being read to also applies to this theory. Likely, the sensory experience of the vodka going over his lips, or in the bourbon in this case, would only intensify the longing for his old ways. By shooting the vodka into his mouth, he denies himself that pleasure. In that way, he maintains the delusion he's denying himself something he once could not live without. Okay. I could buy that. I don't think this changes our thoughts on the matter, but it no. adds some nice color to it. Sure, definitely. So I like that. Jay from Memphis said, I was listening to podcasts for season three, episode two, and Aaron discussed why putting $500 billion into a one-to-one expenditure by hitting full employment would be advantageous politically. Here's the implicit reason why, aside from a generally offering employment. 
Uh, number one, the multiplier effect. You can Wikipedia if you prefer, but this, uh, uh, but he's going to kind of outline it for us. Essentially putting money into hands of someone going from an income of zero to a solid wage pumps money into the economy at a faster rate than most purely public expenditures. The reasons being, A, everyone takes care of their needs first. That means paying for food, housing, and utilities. B, the next step is modest discretionary luxuries. There's a whole subset of the economy related to this, including podcast subscriptions. <laughs> he notes, parenthetically, join Club Bald Move for all your audio <laughs> treadmill needs. <laughs> Yes, thank you for that ad. C, both of the above pump money into the regular arteries of the economy. In turn, that feeds other businesses. The goal is to directly send a single-dollar bill through to market as many times as possible after immediate payment. D, alternatively, that money might be spent developing tanks or dogfighting airplanes. That expenditure is larded out by the time it hits people's pockets, meaning it doesn't circulate as well or as frequently. So in addition to hiring people, America Works would probably make the U.S. very attractive for foreign investment. Stock prices would go up from individual institutional investors. Public investments and mutual funds and pensions would increase the strength of any enterprise by improving the underlying infrastructure. The downside is that complete melding of state and industry is the definition of fascism. <laughs> so there's that. You know, just that. He says, anywho, I'm not sure how a program like AmWorks, as proposed, would play out in actuality. It doesn't imply an authoritarian vanguard forcing compliance and acceptance of an idea, but it doesn't rule it out either. However, millions of people could probably peacefully and fruitfully, if redundantly and or unprofitably, be employed. Considering that money once collected will not be immediately reimbursed, putting it in the hands of people rather than a largely institutionalized shareholders would keep every crisp dollar bill snapping through the market in perhaps the fastest way possible for public expenditure. Okay. I'm, I'm even less of an economist than he is. Yes. Uh, so that's sure. the thing I have. Like <laughs> I've, I've really struggled in the last few years to understand economics on a, like on a global political basis. Okay. And I read that and that seems to make sense. But then I read conservative thought think pieces that talk about, you know, or, or, or liberal ones that make the opposite case. And that makes sense too. Sure. And I'm like, God damn it. How do you, what, what is real? What is real when it comes to finance and politics and money, monetary policy? You won't get an answer from me. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, Chris C. said, it's quite the coincidence that Boris Nem Nemtsov, the leading critic of Putin, was just murdered in the Red Square <laughs> on February 27th at the same time this season wow. was hitting Netflix. I have to wonder how long ago the season's arc was pinned considering everything that's happened with Russia in the last few months. It is prescient. Yeah, definitely. Like Dan Carlin was writing about poking the Russian bear like eight months ago before it kind of like, you know, before the Olympics and before it really blew up. Mm -hmm. But damn, this show is like ripped from the headlines. Yeah. Yeah. They must. I, I don't know. I mean, they shot it, what, several months ago? Had to. Have. So I don't I don't know. Maybe they have a lot of people reading and I mean, who understand this shit and just say, what is the most pertinent issue right now? Yeah. Uh, as it relates to the plot that we kind of want to tell. I can't think of anything like it. Like, there's been a lot of, um, you know, post-9-11, post-Mideast foreign policy movie and entertainment made in, in hindsight. Yeah. But this is like real-time criticism um, and or mm -hmm. commentary. And it's kind, of, it's kind of exciting and also grim. <laughs> yeah, it is that. Like, I'm deriving entertainment from something that's genuinely a complex and scary thing going on in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, he continues, we know how Frank performs against people who are playing the same game as him. I'm very excited to see how he fares up against someone who is an entirely different rule book. On the whole, I think the Russian arc will be more interesting than the Chinese one from season two. At the very least, I think more viewers will have been exposed to the headlines they're ripping the story from. I wish there was going to be more seasons solely so that Doug could be killed and resurrected every year as a growingly disfigured, syringe-sipping <laughs> Frankenstein monster. <laughs> Got to go with the bolts, man. Yeah. Get the bolts in the neck next. No, if I don't see bolts in two episodes, I'm out. Uh, final email, which actually pertains to this episode, from Amy from Oxford, England. Okay. Said, I wanted to pause to express how badass and brilliant I thought the restroom scene between Claire and Alexi was in episode five. Given the previous exchange between the two earlier in the episode, I really thought this encounter played with gender politics and patriarchal power in a really <laughs> interesting way that I haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. I will co-sign that. Yeah. 
In their earlier conversation, Alexi called Claire out on her inability to make an impact, making a misogynist jibe about her being only good first lady material, and then belittling her by snidely complimenting her dress, which is classic sexist moves to reduce a woman to nothing more than her appearance. Cut to be to th- fair, it was an awesome dress. To be fair. That's a pretty nice dress. Cut to the next scene together, and the angle and tone of their relationship completely changes when Alexi is forced into a feminine-centric situation that makes him feel hilariously uncomfortable and takes him out of the perception of females <laughs> with which he feels confident. Yep. Being in a woman's restroom and having to witness the pee flow of a prominent, powerful female reduces him to an awkward mess, and the choice of location <laughs> and deliberate action from Claire makes the punch of her miracle dealings even more of a bloody blow for him. Body blow, rather. We as viewers already know that Claire is certainly no fair damsel, but I thought this whole scene was a great twist in the chauvinist getting his comeuppance trope that is so often used in drama. Probably my favorite scene of the entire season so far. It's it was a great good. scene. Real good, yeah. And I think as a as a lady, you very well articulated why it hit. Yeah, much better than I could do. Uh, it's great. Um, I can foresee some more uh, Emmy nominations for Robin Wright based on her work thus far. And we're not even done the best, best bathroom scene. Best, but yeah, like I, I want to see that on the Emmy cast. I want her <laughs> sitting on the toilet with the door open, haranguing Alexi. <laughs> That's her submission episode. Awesome. I want to hear audible peeing mm-hmm. on the Emmy, on Emmy night. <laughs> uh, okay. If you'd like to send us some more feedback, you can do so at house of cards at baldmove.com. Also, I got a, uh, I got some uh, forum threads, which I'll probably be trolling for the next episode, where everything's broken down by episode and subject matter. Uh, you can get in there on forums.baldmove.com. Of course, every episode gets posted to Facebook, to facebook.com slash baldmove. You can discuss it there. You can annoy Jim and harass him on Twitter, at baldmove. Also, keep up with our release schedule. You, re- you really hit that annoy and harass button every time. <laughs> I know. Like, yeah, go over there, give him shit. I Give him plenty of shit. Well, you know, that's the, that's the peril you know, it's not of really letting working. me do 99.9% of the outros. You should... Uh... <laughs> it's not really working, though. People aren't giving me enough shit. Not come enough on, people. shit. What's going on? You're you're daring me to come back on the Twitter, because <laughs> I, can, I can do that for you. Sure. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next time. Until then, I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. See you. <laughs>